What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode 36. We're joined today by the VP of Retail for the Source Holdings here in Las Vegas, Nevada, Sequoia Turner. With 16 years of luxury retail experience, she's seen it all from Tiffany & Co. to cannabis. Sequoia leads retail and allocations operations along with the compliance and purchasing teams. Opening in 2015, the source has established itself as a leading provider of cannabis products in Nevada with five locations across the state as well as manufacturing, cultivation, production facilities, and a planned consumption lounge. They offer more than 80 different strains of cannabis and premium product lines to medical and recreational users, including camp and high heads. Stop in for Croptober deals this month and find out more at thesourcenv.com and enjoy the show. Sequoia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you as well. Um, it, was, it was excellent to sit in the session at Cannabis Conference on um, basically retail boot camp. Right? We yes. talked about everything in that little session. It was the one-day event before the conference. Yes, yes. Lots of good information. It's always good to meet with other people in the industry across the U.S. and just brainstorm and you know, kind of give tools of the trade. Yes, and man, what a trade it is. Um, you know, from luxury retail to cannabis, there, is, there are great correlations, right? But cannabis is a, is a unique beast. Yes, very much. It's it's retail on Mars. So that's a good way to put it. Yeah, you're doing what you know, but in a different environment with weird constraints and legal loops. Absolutely, absolutely, and ever changing. Also, yes, yeah. And um, I I like to tell people that you know a year in the cannabis industry is like five years in another industry. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The agent dog years. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Right. Um, so. With before the source, I'd like to typically start our guests talking maybe about their past with cannabis or maybe when cannabis came into your life. Um, could we roll the clock back and see kind of what you were up to in those early days at Tiffany Co. or in your other retail experiences? Yes, of course. Um, I, you know, really cherish my experience at Tiffany & Company. I think it went um, a long way in developing the leader and the professional that I am today. Uh, I will say, you know, I was still consuming at Tiffany's, as you will find with a lot of Tiffany employees. Um, But as far as being able to link a moment to a purchase is something that I have brought with me into the cannabis industry, especially as I am training and working through sales training with our bud tenders and what we call floor advisors, is letting people know, hey, as There is a lot of power in the plant. Um, Medicinally, we know that, but it's also important to make sure that we're honoring the moments in which people want to consume cannabis, whether that be just um, alone and, you know, in their homes or with a group of friends that we're making sure that we are accurately pairing the perfect cannabis product to the moment they're trying to achieve. 
Right. I think that is a unique perspective still for the industry overall. I think initially everything grows so fast that the pressure and the intent was just to provide and just yeah. supply. Um, how, how has that shift happened here in Nevada or within the source to kind of focus on that um, selection or focus on also appreciating when the consumption happens? Was that from the beginning or did that kind of evolve with the maturity with the industry and the operation? I think it's evolved with the maturity of the industry. Um, you know, the Nevada market overall has been operating for quite a few years and quite a few years in adult use, um, but it began in a medicinal environment. So, you know, it was quite a change for a lot of operators to move from medical and having the framework built around a medical product. So we trained to medical patients, we trained to, you know, the conditions, um, and now we've had to reframe the way that we train and the way that we operate, especially in a market that is so saturated in dispensaries like ours, um, and making sure that we are focusing on service so that we can really drive loyalty with customers. Right, right. And I, um, as soon as I saw your name on the billet for the speakers, I was remembering the snap sales at source or at the <laughs> source. And at my first job here in Vegas was actually with 365 Cannabis. Okay. which is a seed to sale software company. And they had an office downtown for a few years. When I first moved there, I would basically drive past the source every day. And, uh, and so it's, I would just stop in and grab the snap sale and just let the menu decide basically what I was grabbing that day. And it was a good experience and a good way to kind of um, get a feel for the Vegas industry. In some ways, the source was my first dispensary here um, in the city. But, well, I'm glad that we were your first. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we'll be your last also. Um, Definitely. But no, it, it's important. You know, I think of myself as really unique in the sense that I, I really want the plant to be accessible to all. Um, so I'm very carefully always monitoring assortment. Um, while I think it's great to go into shops and get a very elevated presentation and experience that is sometimes off-putting to customers and they don't feel comfortable shopping or even asking questions in those environments. So I'm really big on making sure that there, there's a lot of accessibility and price point and assortment, um, but also in, in the effects of what you're trying to achieve with your cannabis consumption. Right, right. Connoisseurship can actually be had at all of the budgets, right? Absolutely. Within, within Absolutely. cannabis. Yes. I think that's very unique about the product, but probably translates to other uh, other industries in the same way. I mean, within the wine industry or the whiskey space, you have your budget and uh, there's connoisseurship within that budget, even if it's uh, middle or low shelf or extremely high. Um, and on the cannabis space, I think catering to that connoisseurship aspect and helping people appreciate the differences has been a, 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 hard, a hard push for the industry to kind of turn people onto it. But I'm a, like a staunch believer in trying to spread connoisseurship because it, it encourages customers to explore the menu and Absolutely. be willing to try other things or kind of hear the advisors out on, on what may be new or good. Absolutely. You know, what's funny is I completely agree with you. And even though I work for, you know, a large organization, I'm still an individual and still a leader who really wants to support the smaller cultivators and smaller operators, um, which is why I'm so glad that we're in year two of our Croptober in which we can really focus on local cultivators and smaller grows to really drive home that sense of, uh, you know, being a connoisseur. Yeah. And, and community on that front, yes. helping out some of these folks that 
are creating quality, but may yes. have, you know, may need the stage to put that quality on. So that's Absolutely. A, Absolutely. A, a good stage to be on. Uh, there's a, a book by Scott Galloway. It's called The Four. And he talks about um, like CPG products being in new industries, being straight across the board, but gradually moving to a barbell distribution where you have your high end and low end and kind of makes some relation to the makeup space and to cars and like other industries. Do you think cannabis from your perspective is already in that kind of barbell distribution? Or are we, are we still flat across the board with, with good entries at every line? That is a great question. I think our current environment, we are not quite at the barbell model, but we are definitely heading in that direction. Um, I think there are a lot of factors that, you know, contribute to that. And hopefully there will be some legislation happening in 2024 that will alleviate, you know, overhead expenses, tax burdens, things of that nature for operators until we get some relief there. Um, I think we will continue to see the industry move to the barbell model. It's kind of necessary to, to have, have your margins and make the operation functional at that point. And yes. Yeah, with some of the legislative changes, um, a change to 280E would be a lifesaver for business yes. and just allow you guys to now track your operations like every other business, right? And not Absolutely. have that hit. Absolutely. Not only would it be a lifesaver to businesses, but also to communities in which now you're going to have more competition. Um, you'll have more accessibility to products. And I think it will just be, you know, a true trickle down effect that will be positive for the communities. Yes, I imagine a lot of extra profit at that point to spend on marketing and events yeah. and other fun stuff that's just kind of helps people differentiate where if you're just fighting to survive, sometimes it's difficult to add in those um, those differentiators or those unique things. Absolutely, absolutely. And as great as some of the larger corporations are, like, listen, the source is, is one of them. Um, we're all kind of fighting for survival in the sense of just making sure that we can maintain and the quality and the service promises to our customers. Yes. And when you started at the source, how many locations did they have at that time? When I started at the source, we had five, ooh, four locations here in Nevada. We opened our Pahrump location, which we call Homestead, last fall um, in August. So that location is only a year old. Nice. You got to see that one all the way from the beginning um, across yes. the finish line. Kind of yes. really nurture it through. Yes, and I believe at that time that was my 10th dispensary that I've opened. Um, so it was really exciting to hit number 10, but also to your point of just seeing it go from an empty shell to a fully operational building that's thriving. Yeah, right. Kind of watching your little kid grow, yes. graduate from high school. <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. hearing that you have quite the extensive experience with dispensaries as well. It's not just starting at the source with a Missouri-based dispensary and then correct. the and essence as well here in vegas correct correct so i opened the essence dispensaries here in las vegas when they were still medical transitioning them into adult use which that was quite the it was actually very enjoyable it was very enjoyable um and then transitioned to new new licenses in states across the south and the east so arkansas missouri um before coming back to nevada and you know kind of full circle huh Yes. <laughs> and are you from the, the Nevada area or did you end up in Las Vegas for, um, with, with Essence originally? 
Funny enough, I actually grew up in Arkansas. So opening dispensaries in Arkansas was very near and dear to my heart. Um, In Missouri, to be quite honest with you, it's been a really wonderful and enriching experience to see the Deep South um, move towards embracing the cannabis industry. Um, But I definitely miss West Coast weather. It cannot be beat. (laughs) And West Coast infrastructure can also not be beat. So I ended up back in Nevada. And working across time zones the way I do, I still prefer the West Coast. You yes. can be, you can wake up a little bit after everyone and finish absolutely. your work quietly in the evenings. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and Arkansas is like right there in the heart of really the original hemp and cannabis industry for the U.S. Like Kentucky, Arkansas, those states were the biggest providers, like the most consistent. I mean, back when like all the military suits were made out of hemp and rope, and yes. all the medicine had cannabis. Uh, seems like an alternate reality, but we're heading in some ways towards a, like a, a revolution for that same reality. Agree. I agree. I think, you know, some of these states that are a little bit more restrictive to the industry are realizing the benefits um, medicinally, but also, let's be honest, tax revenue is, you know, always welcome in, in states. So it transcends both sides of the aisle, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Money and always does. So. Right. <laughs> And I imagine that bringing those dispensaries to home or near home was uh, a pretty good experience for sure. When I sat through the sessions, I was rapidly taking notes, dreaming and hoping that I would be selected for Missouri's micro business lottery. And my ID was 5042. And the first ID they drew was 5041. Oh, no. Oh, man. So I had my hopes up on the next four and they were all different numbers. Got it. Oh. So I'm I'm actually taking another year to learn, and they're running the same lottery again in Missouri um, at the uh, I think in the August or October next year. Okay. Maybe awesome. another window, but it, it was yes, yeah. Thank you very much. I think it's a stressful um, a stressful decision to open up a license, and there's a lot of um, unknown unknowns. Uh, <laughs> yes. As far as the the biggest concerns, opening a license, where would you have someone amateur such as myself put more focus? Or maybe where would you point out some areas that are easily forgotten when getting an operation started or in um, overseeing a license or dispensary? Um, You know, I think one of the things I always like to emphasize to people is Expect to break even, if not operate at a loss the first year. It is a very difficult industry to, to enter as a new operator, um, no matter you know what form you enter, whether it's retail, whether it's cultivation production, or whether it's you know ancillary business. Um, so that's first and foremost. And then really consider your needs to scale once your business becomes profitable. If you can you know begin to create structure for your business with those two things in mind, you will alleviate a lot of issues down the road for yourself. Kind of an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure. Yes, yes. <laughs> on that side. Yeah, no, it's, and I imagine a lot of newer licensees get kind of head over heels and excited. They see in green, they've just been awarded the the light. You know, it's, it's fun to shop cultivars, decide what the interior looks like. But some of that, that core business um, functionality can kind of come as an afterthought uh, for better or worse. For better or for worse, but yes, <laughs> yeah. they're open and then you realize you need those core business functions. 
Right. Then you realize you need software and yes. tracking and compliance with metric and Absolutely. everything else. ERPs and everything else. Yes. Oh, ERP. That's probably my favorite acronym. <laughs> <laughs> I actually got started in ERP with, with uh, Microsoft Dynamics Nav, okay. doing really boring manufacturing, making windshields and helping people like put together guitars and just anything else like that you would con you could consider. Then coming full circle to cannabis, it's been awesome to see the space slowly mature enough that full-scale ERPs are there for them again. Yes. Tracking all of that accounting, the inventory, the budgets, metric packages and lab Absolutely. tests. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it wasn't always the case. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I probably worked for some of the companies that failed to to meet that mark these <laughs> last few years. Uh, it's been a it's been a journey on the software side for cannabis and it, that's always changing as well with metrics, APIs and kind of law changes and taxes. How have you guys managed software internally? Do you have a team that takes care of the tech um, because of the company's scale or does each location manage their software? No, we do have a team. We have an IT team that takes care of the tech. And then on the flip side, actually on the retail side, actually I have a really wonderful retail technical operations manager who is focused just making sure that, you know, all of our APIs are working, the systems are communicating with each other um, and does everything from high level down to more granular, granular things like ensuring that our coupons are working and things of that nature. Oh, great. That's, that is, that's a nice thing at scale. Um, yeah. Folks can wear one or two hats instead of 50. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so. Training with software is always a, can sometimes be an afterthought too. So I imagine having those folks in place to really work with the advisors and, and people using the systems um, is valuable. You know, I will be very honest. It's been invaluable, A, because he comes from the dispensary setting. And so as we're kind of validating systems and things of that nature, he's the first one to say that's going to be too much of a burden on our tellers or too much of a burden on our floor advisors. So it really gives a voice to our employees that I think would have otherwise been missing. Yes. Yeah. And um, getting that voice is key to leading any team, yes. right? Yes. You want, want folks to feel heard and have that psychological safety to innovate or to raise, raise concerns where they are. Absolutely. Yes. Are, um, to redirect back to the like, operational side a little bit more, are there, are there any key metrics that help you to determine how the business is doing you know, on a monthly basis? Or are there any key numbers that really capture your interest or that you keep returning to? Um, I take a very hard look at weeks of supplies. Um, that kind of lets uh, me know how quickly my inventory is turning, whether or not it's resonating with customers. Um, every single person will tell you gross margin, uh, num number two, yeah. uh, if not number one. But for me, <laughs> you know, margins are tricky in this, mar in this market. Um, we are a bit of a value market. Um, so your traditional retail margins, you know, keystoning items don't resonate with customers as much. So I really look to see what products are we running out of more rapidly? Um, what products are slow movers? And then is it a messaging function or are we just not communicating the value of the product to their customers or is it a quality function? Oh, interesting. So just because something's not maybe not selling well, that reason is is across the board, huh? It could be yeah. the time of the year, the demographic, Absolutely. the advertising. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Just because we're not selling chocolates doesn't mean the chocolates aren't good or that people don't understand. It's just simple the fact that it's 120 degrees and just high. <laughs> that you can't drive home with those chocolates here yes, without yes. drinking them. Yes. <laughs> so then we just go into, there's a, also an element of seasonality with our assortment at times also. Yeah. How, from a seasonal perspective, has that started to standardize, at least for the Vegas market? Or is it still in kind of a mystery if it's going to if it's going to be the same as last year? No, I think that it has definitely started to standardize. Um, we're all, as operators, very familiar with the summer slump. When it hits a certain, you know, triple digits in Las Vegas, people don't want to leave their home. So we start to see a little bit of a decline in the market. Um, so That's yes, where I'm hitting the deliveries up. <laughs> absolutely. That's what I was going to say. So you lean heavily on delivery and, you know, curbside um, express pickup. But it's also... Uh, Funny enough, we'll have a higher percentage of drink sales than chocolates in the summer. Um, gummies tend to taper off a little bit or slow down. Um, our disposables and vapes and carts pick up because people are out, they're enjoying festivals, and they love the convenience. And, the dis- you know, it's a very discreet way to consume. And But always flour and pre-rolls are, are king. They stay, they, yes. they maintain that top position constantly. Yes. While yeah. everyone jockeys for third place, basically below that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Has, have concentrates grown more or have they sort of held their own kind of in the, in the basement or in the corner here? Not quite in the basement, definitely on the first floor and rising to the second. So you definitely Excellent. see, yes, I listen, I'm a dad head myself. So I have seen customers begin to feel more comfortable with it over the last couple of years, there's still a little bit of apprehension, I would say, for consumers, especially consumers who are fairly new or have not been consuming for, for years at a time. Um, and I think right. it, a lot of it has to do with just educating on how to actually consume concentrates. Yes, a little, go, a little can go a long way. Yes. Um, a surprisingly little. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think the concentrate game and kind of the connoisseurship element of concentrates has evolved a lot as well that I, I think has done a good things for making it approachable as, uh, previously when I, when I was the guy in a party, just firing up a butane torch, uh, you get, you catch a lot of weird attention if nobody yeah. understands what the, what the end goal is. So being able to switch to more, uh, like e-nails, um, things like the Puffco, um, even like nectar collectors that can heat up on their own like the honey badger like those kinds of things can just um just make it more accessible right off the bat it just doesn't seem as odd or as obscure for uh for users absolutely and i will also say this it's one of the reasons i'm so proud of our camp line you know i think solventless is an underrated product in the in the valley and for me i can taste the difference um Right, and I those think terpenes. As, yes, mm. and as consumers become more comfortable, solventless is going to be the, the wave of the future. Yeah, and uh, one of my first jobs in the cannabis industry, I was in Denver working for the health center, cultivating and trimming. And they asked if I could make hash. And at the time, to be honest, I could not. But I said that I could, of course, <laughs> and I got the role. And I found myself with the five-gallon buckets and the bags making solventless hash. And uh, after a few mistakes, we started to get decent product going. Yes. And after that, it felt like solventless was always very hard to find and hard to track down. I think because the yields can be 
very dependent on the cultivar you're putting in. Absolutely. Um, things about the, the demographics, the markets you're selling to, solvent lists can be at a higher cost. Absolutely. Uh, and it's labor well. intensive. It's more labor intensive than, you know. Uh, than just running your cycles or running your, your normal Absolutely. extractions. Absolutely. It's truly an art form. And yeah. I, why, why do you think it's been slow to grow in the Valley versus like more established legacy markets? I mean, Vegas has been around for a while. I don't know if maybe there were some things earlier on that prevented solventless or if it was purely a margin and kind of cogs kind of decision. I think it's purely a margin and a cogs decision. Um, and then I do believe that price point was very prohibitive for new users to, to get their hands on their product. Um, I see. If yes. you try to go in a solventless and Vegas market already has a little bit of a premium on it, I think, compared to other markets Absolutely. Uh, due to the... I mean, maybe just to the city itself due to the, the tourist nature of Nevada and everything along with that. But having that premium and then actually getting premium products as well, like solventless, can be a little bit harder on the wallet, um, especially for regular consumers. You might want to sprinkle in some sugar every once in a while with that. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's funny, one of the more recent things I did was actually drop our price on our rosin to make it more accessible to our customers. So. So we have you to thank. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's been a it's been a very interesting to find um, a, a home shop here in Las Vegas with with the competition and so many dispensaries just leveraging their deals, um, sometimes moving product, you know, that just needs to be moved with those deals, but still attracting customers and kind of pulling from one another. In the realm of customer retention, when you know, what are dispensaries doing to, to maintain that, that customer or keep that return business? Is that all in the, in the interaction with those advisors and, and bud tenders and folks on the floor? I think it varies by dispensary. I can speak, you know, specifically for the source. We lean very heavily on creating loyalty with our floor advisors. So first and foremost, we got to make sure that we treat our employees right. So that translate into their interactions with the customers. Um, and that could be everything from making sure they have the proper education. They have the product in their hand so they can, you know, speak to firsthand testimony of the product. Um, and then it's providing the training so that they understand what are the service expectations? Um, what are some of the questions you should be asking consumers? You know, how to lead the interaction instead of being led by the customer? Just little things. Uh, right. So kind of help coaching them to essentially... They're kind of passively coaching the customer, um, right? Yes. You don't want to necessarily push, but I think um, the question that I had asked in the in the retail setting is one that we've talked about on the show a lot, and that's kind of like whose responsibility is it to help educate the customer? And oftentimes it gets pushed, I think, maybe unfairly on the folks right on the front lines. But to be honest, they're in the most pivotal situation too. So it's it's easy to say that. Um, do you think that that is our best source for educating the consumer? Is like right there in the store, or are, would you recommend programs, or have you seen you know other things help with your with your customers? You know, that's a very interesting question because we've done a little bit of both. I would say over the last year, um, we would have uh, you know higher educations in which we'd open up our one of our flagship locations, invite customers in, and we tackle a different topic every month, whether it's edibles, topicals, um, how to read test results. And we found uh, a lot of great success with that. 
and driving loyalty. But as the market matured, um, people were more and more, and we are a locals dispensary. We're very proud to say that we don't cater to the tourist market. We enjoy the communities in which we operate. Um, as the market matured, so as our customers and so of their education. So we're, we, we are reevaluating um, how to educate the customer and what they are looking for. Um, yeah, so it's, a progress. Uh, it's, it's always kind of evolving, right? As we, yes. as we figure it out. The, um, the one good thing about that premium that can sometimes happen in Vegas and about the products all across Las Vegas, I think is the lab testing and what the label provides for an aware consumer. Seeing the top three terpenes is amazing. I absolutely love walking in and just saying, I want to find a terpene that's over 10 milligrams per gram, preferably terpenaline. Yes. Um, if you don't have that, myrcene. <laughs> and you can just cut right to it, right to the chase. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And, and that's you know, something you don't, I, you don't get that in other markets. Missouri is one of those yeah. markets in which they don't, you know, showcase the terps. And that was very different for me as, as far as how I was training bartenders to educate the customers. And I was still training to terps because I'm, it's still there and available, even though it's not on the label um, and making sure that right. they had an understanding of the product. And, you know, to be honest, we're one of the free dispensaries here in Nevada that still displays the terps on our signage and things of that nature because it's important. Yeah. The terps don't lie. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really think that's how it is. And I mean, for folks that haven't shopped in the Vegas market, I mean, the top three are listed. So there are, and I'm going to get this wrong, there are probably a hundred or more terpenes um, because they're across foods and everything else that exists. But there's a ton in cannabis and a few that are very prevalent. Yes. But knowing what that predominant one is or finding a strain that's particularly high in one terpene or the other will actually change those effects pretty significantly, whether you're going to be sitting on the couch kind of relaxing afterwards or you're ready to clean the house and get out Absolutely. of the house. It's a Absolutely. big change. Big change. <laughs> Is there a terpene that you prefer or um, something that you kind of jump for if you see it that it's dominant? Always carry a filing. So I'm, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's spice. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I really enjoy it. And my body responds very well to it and mentally it does just really great things and making sure I feel very motivated and positive. So, yeah, I think I'm on the same line there, the carry filing and the mirror scene. Typically, if I can find terpenaline, that's good for the day. It's a yeah. little more, it's a little more edgy, but, yes. uh, <laughs> it's interesting to be able to, to actually consume that way versus just saying, uh, what's the highest THC? Absolutely. Or can I have some flower that's purple? Uh, yes. There's some there's some distinguishers or things that maybe aren't actually good marks of quality, like the the terps. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We hear well, that the request for purple a lot, which is funny. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys still uh, has it gone down at least over the last few years? Slightly, but there's still quite a few requests for it. To be honest. Uh, that's where the. Uh, the industry has just has some knowledge over the consumers a little bit with yes. with most cannabis strains you can milk a little bit of color out of them with bigger temperature swings late in flower obviously there's certain ones that are going to shine for you but um it's maybe not as uh, wonderful as it's as it looks and sounds but yeah. there's a lot of music about it and it I feels was cool say the culture. <laughs> the culture always wants the purple, so yes. exactly can't go wrong there That's right. <laughs> are there any other standard cultivars that uh the source offers that uh, you're particularly proud of or that were hard to track down maybe or um, kind of nursed up in-house over the years? 
Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I really enjoy our 007. I think it's a very unique um, product out in the market. There's nothing that really provides that kind of flavor profile, that kind of fizziness. I, it's very difficult to describe, but I've never, I haven't tasted anything similar like that here in Nevada, or to be honest, in any other states that I've been operating. So to Ooh. see, yes, the popularity of that and to see our customers really resonate with that, it's, it's been great. And coming back for favorites, branding cultivars is particularly difficult because you need consistency. Yes. So being able to provide that same feeling on multiple harvests of 007 is a, a major victory in and of itself for the cultivation operations. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Our, cultivation. Yeah, yes. The growers making it all happen. Yes. Is the uh, B2B side of the source located here in Vegas as well with cultivation and manufacturing? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay. So we actually have, um, based in Las Vegas, we have our distribution based out of our home office. We have a cultivation based in Vegas also, but we also have a cultivation based in Peru. Okay. And um, can you reveal the method of, of cultivation you're using as far as soilless, hydro, aeroponics? So uh, I cannot. Trade secrets. Trade, yes. We don't want to tread there. <laughs> Keep it good. Yes. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I mean, for our listeners, we'll we'll put a little list here in the in the show notes. But the source has over eighty cultivars and strains and in their lineup, so it's it's not a small menu to to peruse. No, no, it's it's quite robust. As far as stocking that menu, how does one look at five locations um, from that thirty thousand foot view and begin to allocate not only budget but actual purchase recommendations or suggestions on maybe one category versus the next or certain brands. Is there a, is there a method to the madness or is it still a little bit of madness going on? No, there's definitely a method to the madness. Um, I do what I like to call an assortment review every quarter at the beginning of every quarter, just seeing what high level. So category, what categories are really driving our revenue? Once you can kind of start identifying that, you then drill down into each particular category, look at any of your subcategories. So for edibles, you know, uh, we're looking at everything from gummies to chocolates to um, capsules to drinks and figuring out what's really driving it. How, what was our last historical three, last three months in sales? What do we think we can grow? And then we'll start kind of drilling down even further into brands and then further beyond that into SKUs. Um, so it is very tedious. It's, you know, a lot of reporting, a lot of conversations. Um, but I will say with all the reporting, I don't ignore the feedback from floor advisors. I'm in stores every week just asking and walking shelves with them, you know, skew by skew. What's working? What's not working? What are you hearing from your customers? I'm speaking to the leaders at each location. You know, what are you hearing from the staff? You know, what, unfortunately, sometimes my title means that, Everything's great when I walk into and ask a floor advisor. Um, it's hard to tell the VP that maybe something yes. could be better. Uh. Yes, yes. Um, I do have some fearless floor advisors who don't mind telling me when they don't enjoy the product, um, but it's important for me to discern with the feedback what is a personal preference from that floor advisor or from that team versus what is the customer saying? What is the data telling me along with that? Uh, right. It's a combination of what they say versus also what they do. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. 
I yeah, I'd imagine that's a quite a game to work out the quarterly quarterly purchasing then on that front. Yeah. But it really allows us to be really more refined in how we assort store by store. I see. Ah, so even on the store level, that purchasing has been done with the with the data gathered from the last Correct. Correct. little while for the store. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. So that way the prompt store is not stuck in maybe all the pre-rolls that may sell better Absolutely. down here. Absolutely. Yes. And I saw that as far as um, innovation around the menu goes that you guys have added an, an AI bud tender or a way to take preferences from the consumer a little bit and maybe recommend products. Is that in-house software? Have you partnered on that front to, um, to bring that tool to consumers? We partner with a company called Terply. Um, as we all know, e-commerce is really growing within the cannabis industry, but one of the feedback that we heard from our customers who purchased primarily online was that they were really missing that interaction with, with the bud tender, with the floor advisor. So we have found that this is a really good resolution for those customers. Right. Just being able to ask a few questions or yes. maybe make sense of a 50 SKU or a 120 SKU menu uh, if yes. they need to quickly. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And give really re- you know recommendations that resonate and are relevant to the customer. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes in the dispensaries in Vegas and in elsewhere, if you have a long line behind you, it can feel even a little rushed to ask a question. Yes. And obviously the folks there want, they want to help you, but they are also managing this line. It becomes really a balancing act of maybe a little bit of education, a little bit of service, but also, Hey, Keep it moving, right? (laughs) I know especially some of the source locations I have seen get very busy right after work. You guys are a hot spot for, I think, similar folks to me just making their way home and uh, stuck in the commute. Yes, yes. And we want to make sure that everyone is, you know, getting their needs met, whether it's through an AI bartender or through an in-person bartender. Right. I think that helps. And uh, as some consumers, I imagine, are maybe migrated to ordering online only. Just the ease of that. It's sometimes hard for me to just get away from work to actually drive the 20 minutes somewhere. And it's pretty convenient to have, you know, have a dude show up the old fashioned way. Say hello hello at my door. (laughs) But just checking your ID this time instead of just. (laughs) Yes. All above the board, of course. But uh, (laughs) yeah, that's what I always, it always feels kind of nostalgic. I want to be like, come in, man, sit on the couch for a while. (laughs) They wish. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It seems like the drivers in Vegas area are, they are busy, man. Those guys are the knights of the cannabis right now, carrying awesome. the, carrying just trunkfuls of uh, orders up and um, down the strip and all over. Yes. <laughs> do you have an internal delivery team or is, do you partner with one of the delivery organizations here? We partner with the delivery organization here, which has, you know, been great for us. Um, yeah, and imagine um, like... You can only do so much inside the business structure before partners really start to make sense. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And, you know, got to keep that overhead low. And um, as far as the employee count for the source overall, is it, I saw that you had 200 employees listed. Was that only the retail shops? So then it's actually a larger, even a larger group than that that's running manufacturing and cultivation? Uh, it's not a larger group. So retail employees make up the bulk of our employees, but I would say you could add an additional 60 to 75 employees that make up cultivation, production, and our distribution. Oh, wow. That is quite a team. 
Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and how, I guess, do you have any tips or, um, or methods that you use to, to work with organizations of that size or to implement standards? Um, I guess it comes down to process and the, and the people, but, um, is there anything in there that's like really the magic sauce to making sure everyone's seeing the same vision? Oh, that's a great question. It's in my mind, as simple as trusting in your dispensary leadership and supporting your dispensary leadership, um, being very transpa transparent about the decisions and the business decisions that really will affect their day-to-day -day operations and making sure that you're getting their feedback and also their, their buy-in to the decision-making um, is really important. Right. It's not, it's not always best to, and I've seen organizations do this outside of dispensaries, but pushing things top down with yes. no explanation or buy-in can be uh, not only bad for the folks, but maybe even bad for the budget, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, it's so important to not just push down new processes or new systems. It's really important to make sure that you have either one to two representatives, everyone's super busy in their role, but someone that can come in and provide feedback and, you know, maybe we should think about this when we're launching. Those little things go a long way to just being more seamless and efficient. Yes, right. And, and getting insight from everyone is kind of a, sounds obvious, but some organizations aren't really pulling those insights um, if they're only trusting leaders or if there's kind of barriers between the hierarchy, it can be difficult. Absolutely. And I'm always a little amused by that because I'm always wondering, why did you hire that employee if, you, <laughs> if you're not going to trust their feedback? And there are probably many, many employees listening to this that wonder that same thing about their manager. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it might be a human problem, not necessarily a, a cannabis or retail problem. That's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> so on the consumption lounge space, that's a big news. I didn't know that the source had a lounge in the works. Yes, Those licenses have just started being awarded in Vegas or they've already been handed out? Um, there are a few that were awarded previously to this um, and people are getting into their final, you know, uh, certificate of operations, certificate of occupancy. So you'll start to see them pop up, I would say, more after the first of the year. Um, we're going to be in downtown Las Vegas a great 9,000 square foot facility that'll have a retail dispensary and a lounge. So we're really, really excited for it. I know. I feel the industry jumped at the opportunity to, to produce and sell cannabis and yeah. kind of forgot about like wherever you were supposed to consume it. Just yes. consume it behind closed doors, but please keep coming and um, explore the menu and you know those kinds of things. So consumption lounges are lagging in the space. And I'm looking forward to seeing that open up more and kind of provide those areas uh, of consumption, especially here in Vegas with so many folks flying in reasonably, where are they consuming these products that they buy? Yes. Um, behind closed doors, right? All right. along like, the strip. Exactly. Someone else is apparently is a citizen of Vegas. Yes. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think that's also just kind of acknowledging the 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 space actually by by providing consumption lounges and starting to deal with those licensing and giving people a safe method to consume outside of their home i think it's very very important um for those of us that have been consuming for a while we know what a social aspect 
uh, cannabis consumption can be. So I think it'll be really great to see the lounges take off and to finally be able to embrace the social side of, of cannabis consumption. Um, personally, I can't wait and fingers crossed to being able to see consumption lounges at, you know, large scale events like, you know, ED, EDC and things of that nature, I think would be very, very cool. Oh man. Yeah. As soon as the lounges start being a little more mobile or arenas and events start opening up, uh, the smoking sections are coming yes. back, right? <laughs> yeah. I know. Wouldn't that be just fantastic to go to a game and be able to consume and then go to your seats and watch the rest of the game. So yeah. <laughs> right. Right, or just take a box or something out of the, the Golden Knights and call that the Consumption Lounge. Yes, yes. <laughs> right, are, are you guys entertaining any um, like alternative businesses to run alongside the lounge? I feel like Consumption Lounges present this new opportunity for innovation where you can kind of decide what you want that lounge to be and what you may offer alongside it. Absolutely. And we are, and I, I can't say that it's something that we will personally operate, but we are looking for partners um, and collaborations to make sure that we're offering, I would say, a lineup of services and events that really fit and partner perfectly with cannabis. Uh, right. It's a, it's going to be a little bit of a learning game there too. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. But yes. the space sounds huge. That's a potentially wonderful event space. Like. Absolutely. For any conference, um, I'm thinking like BizCon, cannabis yes. conference, you know, after parties and things like that. It's been weird to go to those after parties and be told not to smoke um, among all the folks that are really making the smoke and making yes. the whole industry. So that yes. starting to turn to some of those spaces will be great. Absolutely. agree. <laughs> awesome, Sequoia. Well, is there anything else we should uh, touch on for the listeners? I think we talked about camp the new upcoming consumption lounge. Um, how about, and oh, we talked about Croptober as well. Uh, anything else upcoming that folks should be aware of at the source or um, around the deals and things there? Um, just a few things. So we do have a line of products called High Heads. Uh, we will be introducing a, what we're calling a double stuff pre-roll, which will not only be uh, solventless uh, in, infused pre-roll, which we're really, really excited about. So you should be seeing that, I would say, sometime around December. Um, but we're really excited for our, our high heads line and introducing new SKUs in that product line. Ooh, delicious. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely take a look. And um, I was, I've already been browsing the menu here for my my weekly purchase on fridays I'll, awesome. be, I'll be driving down to the source for sure and be sure awesome. to say hello to the folks down there <laughs> great can't yeah. wait to see you excellent sequoia yeah, thank you for joining the show today and and just sharing some insight and knowledge with us your background is extremely impressive and uh yeah i wish you guys all the best of luck thank you you too much appreciated Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show, along with our services and courses, visit apt113.com. We offer cannabis software product management, cannabis education courses, and freelance writing. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.